We've just released the entire back catalogue of Send Me to Sleep. Many episodes, which were previously only available to premium subscribers, are now publicly available and completely free, including The Wizard of Oz, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Around the World in 80 Days, and so many more. So be sure to check out our back catalogue, so you never miss out on a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 12 and 13 of Tick-Tock of Oz by L. Frank Baum. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 12 The Lovely Lady of the Light The palace of the Queen of Light stood on a little eminence and was a mass of crystal windows surmounted by a vast crystal dome. When they entered the portals, Irma was greeted by six lovely maidens, evidently of high degree, who at once aroused Betsy's admiration. Each wore a wand in her hand, tipped with an emblem of light, and their costumes were also emblematic of the lights they represented. Irma introduced them to her guests, and each made a graceful and courteous acknowledgement. First was sunlight, radiantly beautiful and very fair. The second was moonlight, a soft, dreamy damsel with nut-brown hair. Next came starlight, equally lovely but inclined to be retiring and shy. These three were dressed in shimmering robes of silvery white. The fourth was daylight, a brilliant damsel with laughing eyes and frank manners, who wore a variety of colours. Then came firelight, clothed, in a fleecy flame-coloured robe that wavered around her shapely form in a very attractive manner. The sixth maiden, Electra, was the most beautiful of all, and Betsy thought from the first that both sunlight and daylight regarded Electra with envy and were a little jealous of her but all were cordial in their greetings to the strangers and seemed to regard the Queen of Light with much affection, for they fluttered around her in a flashing, radiant group as she led the way to her regal drawing room. This apartment was richly and cosily furnished, the upholstery 
being of many tints, and both Betsy and Polychrome enjoyed resting themselves upon the downy divans after their strenuous adventures of the day. The queen sat down to chat with her guests, who noticed that Daylight was the only maiden now seated beside Irma. The others had retired to another part of the room, where they sat modestly with entwined arms, and did not intrude themselves at all. The queen told the strangers all about this beautiful land, which is one of the chief residences of fairies who minister to the needs of mankind. So many important fairies lived there that, to avoid rivalry, they had elected as their ruler the only important personage in the country who had no duties to mankind and was, in effect, a private citizen. This ruler, or Jinjin, as his title was, bore the name of Tititi Huchu, and the most singular thing about him was that he had no heart. But instead of this, he possessed a high degree of reason and justice, and whilst he showed no mercy in his judgments, he never punished unjustly or without reason. To wrongdoers, Titi Hoochoo was a terrible and heartless person, but to those who were innocent of evil, they had nothing to fear of him. All the kings and queens of this fairy land paid reverence to the Jinjin, for as they expected to be obeyed by others, they were willing to obey the one in authority over them. The inhabitants of the land of Oz had heard many tales of this fearfully just Jinjin, whose punishments were always equal to the faults committed. Polychrome also knew of him, although this was the first time she had ever seen him face to face. But to Betsy, the story was all new, and she was greatly interested in Titi Hoochoo, whom she no longer feared. Time sped swiftly during their talk, and suddenly Betsy noticed that Moonlight was sitting beside the Queen of Light, instead of Daylight. But tell me, please, she pleaded, why do you all wear a dragon's head embroidered on your gowns? Irma's pleasant face became grave as she answered. The dragon, as you must know, was the first living creature ever made. Therefore the dragon is the oldest and wisest of living things. By good fortune, the original dragon, who still lives, 
is a resident of this land and supplies us with wisdom whenever we are in need of it. He is old as the world and remembers everything that has happened since the world was created. Did he ever have any children? inquired the girl. Yes, many of them. Some wandered into other lands, where men, not understanding them, made war upon them. But many still reside in this country. None, however, is as wise as the original dragon, for whom we have great respect. As he was the first resident here, we wear the emblem of the dragon's head to show that we are the favoured people who alone have the right to inhabit this land, which in beauty almost equals the fairy land of Oz, and in power quite surpasses it. I understand about the dragon now, said Polychrome, nodding her lovely head. Betsy did not quite understand, but she was at present interested in observing the changing lights. As daylight had given way to moonlight, so now starlight sat at the right hand of Irma the Queen, and with her coming a spirit of peace and content seemed to fill the room. Polychrome being herself a fairy, had many questions to ask about the various kings and queens who lived in this far away, secluded place, and before Irma had finished answering them, a rosy glow filled the room, and firelight took her place beside the queen. Betsy liked firelight but to gaze upon her warm and glowing features made the little girl sleepy, and presently she began to nod. Thereupon, Irma rose and took Betsy's hand gently in her own. Come, said she, the feast time has arrived and the feast is spread. That's nice exclaimed the small mortal. Now that I think of it, I'm awfully hungry. But perhaps I can't eat your fairy food. The queen smiled and led her to a doorway. As she pushed aside a heavy drapery, a flood of silvery light greeted them, and Betsy saw before her a splendid banquet hall, with a table spread with snowy linen and crystal and silver. At one side was a broad, throne-like seat for Irma, and beside her now sat the brilliant maid Electra. Polychrome was placed on the Queen's right hand, and Betsy upon her left. The other five messengers of light now waited upon them, and each person was supplied with just food she liked best. 
Polychrome found her dish of dewdrops, all fresh and sparkling, while Betsy was so lavishly served that she decided she had never in her life eaten a dinner half so good. I suppose, she said to the Queen, that Miss Electra is the youngest of all these girls. Why do you suppose that? inquired Irma with a smile. Cause electricity is the newest light we know of. Didn't Mr. Edison discover it? Perhaps he was the first mortal to discover it, replied the Queen. But electricity was a part of the world from its creation, and therefore my Electra is as old as daylight or moonlight, and equally beneficent to mortals and fairies alike. Betsy was thoughtful for a time, then she remarked as she looked at the six messengers of light. We couldn't very well do without any of them, could we? Irma laughed softly. I couldn't, I'm sure, she replied. And I think mortals would miss any one of my maidens as well. Daylight cannot take the place of sunlight, which gives us strength and energy. Moonlight is of value when daylight, worn out with her long watch, retires to rest. If the moon in its course is hidden behind the earth's rim, and my sweet moonlight cannot cheer us, starlight takes her place, for the skies always lend her power. Without firelight, we should miss much of our warmth and comfort, as well as much cheer when the walls of houses encompass us. But always, when other lights forsake us, our glorious Electra is ready to flood us with bright rays. As Queen of Light, I love all my maidens, for I know them to be faithful and true. I love em too, declared Betsy. Sometimes, when I'm real sleepy, I can get along without any light at all. Are you sleepy now? inquired Irma, for the feast had ended. A little, admitted the girl. So Electra showed her to a pretty chamber where there was a soft, white bed and waited patiently until Betsy had undressed and put on a shimmering silken nightrobe that lay beside her bed. Then the light maid bade her good night and opened the door. When she closed it after her, Betsy was in darkness. In six winks, the little girl was fast asleep. Chapter 13 The Jinn's Just Judgment All the adventurers were reunited next morning 
when they were brought from various palaces to the residence of Tititi Huchu and ushered into the great hall of state. As before, no one was visible except our friends and their escorts until the first bell sounded. Then in a flash the room was seen to be filled with the beautiful kings and queens of the land. The second bell marked the appearance in the throne of the mighty Jin, whose handsome countenance was as composed and expressionless as ever. All bowed low to the ruler, their voices softly murmured, We greet the private citizen, mightiest of rulers, whose word in law and whose law is just. Tichi Huchu bowed in acknowledgement. Then, looking around the brilliant assemblage and at the little group of adventurers before him, he said, An unusual thing has happened. Inhabitants of other lands than ours, who are different from ourselves in many ways, have been thrust upon us through the forbidden tube which one of our people foolishly made years ago and was properly punished for his folly. That these strangers had no desire to come here and were wickedly thrust into the tube by a cruel king on the other side of the world named Ruggedo. This king is an immortal, but he is not good. His magic powers hurt humankind more than they benefited them. Because he had unjustly kept the shaggy man's brother a prisoner, this little band of honest people, consisting of both mortals and immortals, determined to conquer Ruggedo and to punish him, fearing they might succeed in this. The Gnome King misled them so that they fell into this tube. Now, this same Ruggedo has been warned by me many times that if ever he used this forbidden tube in any way, he would be severely punished. I find, by referring to the fairy records, that this king's servant a gnome named Calico begged his master not to do such a wrong act as to drop these people into the tube and send them tumbling into our country. But Ruggedo defied me and my orders. Therefore, these strangers are innocent of any wrong. It is only Ruggedo who deserves punishment and I will punish him. He paused a moment, and then continued in the same cold, merciless voice. These strangers must return through the tube to their own side of the world, but I will make their fall more easy and pleasant than it was before. Also, I shall send with them an instrument of vengeance, who in my name 
will drive Ruggedo from his underground cavern, take away his magic powers, and make him a homeless wanderer on the face of the earth, a place he detests. There was a little murmur of horror from the kings and queens at the severity of the punishment, but no one uttered a protest, for all realized that the sentence was just. In selecting my instrument of vengeance, went on Titi Huchu, I have realized that this will be an unpleasant mission. Therefore, no one of us who is blameless should be forced to undertake it. In this wonderful land, it is seldom one is guilty of wrong, even in the slightest degree, and on examining the records, I found no king or queen had erred, nor had any among their followers or servants done any wrong. But finally, I came to the dragon family, which we highly respect and then it was discovered that an error was made by Quarks. Quarks, as you well know, is a young dragon who has not yet acquired the wisdom of his race. Because of this lack, he has been disrespectful towards his most ancient ancestor, the original dragon telling him once to mind his own business, and again saying that the ancient one had grown foolish with age. We are aware that dragons are not the same as fairies, and cannot be altogether guided by our laws. Yet such disrespect as Quox has shown should not be unnoticed by us. Therefore, I have selected Quox as my royal instrument of vengeance, and he shall go through the tube with these people, and inflict upon Regedo the punishment I have decreed. All had listened quietly to this speech, and now the kings and queens bowed gravely to signify their approval of the jinn's judgment. Tititi Huchu turned to Tubkins. I command you, said he, to escort these strangers to the tube and see that they are all entered into it. The king of the tube, who had first discovered our friends and brought them to the private citizen, stepped forward and bowed. As he did so, the jinn and all the kings and queens suddenly disappeared, and only Tubekins remained visible. All right, said Betsy with a sigh. I don't mind going back so very much, cause the jinn's promised to make it easy for us. Indeed, Queen Anne and her officers were the only ones who looked solemn and seemed to fear the return journey. 
One thing that bothered Anne was her failure to conquer this land of Tititihuchu. As they followed their guide through the gardens to the mouth of the tube, she said to Shaggy, How can I conquer the world if I go away and leave this rich country unconquered? You can't, he replied. Don't ask me why, please, for if you don't know, I can't inform you. Why not, said Anne. But Shaggy paid no attention to the question. This end of the tube had a silver rim, and around it was a golden railing, to which was attached a sign that read, If you are out, stay there. If you are in, don't come out. On a little silver plate, just inside the tube, was engraved the words, Borrowed and built by Hiragago the Magician, in the year of the world, 19625478, for his own exclusive uses. He was some builder, I must say, remarked Betsy, when she had read the inscription. But if he had known about that star, I guess he'd have spent his time playing solitaire. Well, what are we waiting for? inquired Shaggy, who was impatient to start. Quox, replied Tubekins, but I think I hear him coming. Is the young dragon invisible? asked Anne, who had never seen a live dragon, and was a little fearful of meeting one. No, indeed, replied the king of the tube. You'll see him in a minute, but before you part company, I'm sure you'll wish he was invisible. Is he dangerous then? questioned Files. No, not at all, but Quox tries me dreadfully, said Tubekins, and I prefer his room to his company. At that instant, a scraping sound was heard, drawing nearer and nearer, until from between two big bushes appeared a huge dragon, who approached the party, nodded his head, and said, Good morning. Had Quox been at all bashful, I am sure he would have felt uncomfortable at the astonished stare of every eye in the group, except Tubekins, of course, who was not astonished because he had seen Quox often. Betsy had thought a young dragon must be a small dragon, yet here was one so enormous that the girl decided he must be full-grown, if not overgrown. His body was a lovely sky blue in colour, and it was thickly set with glittering silver scales, each one as big as a serving tray. Around his neck was a pink ribbon with a bow just under his left ear, 
and below the ribbon appeared a chain of pearls, to which was attached a golden locket, about as large around as the end of a bass drum. This locket was set with many large and beautiful jewels. The head and face of Crocs were not especially ugly, when you consider that he was a dragon, but his eyes were so large that it took him a long time to wink, and his teeth seemed very sharp and terrible when they showed, which they did whenever the beast smiled. Also, his nostrils were quite large and wide, and those who stood near him were liable to smell brimstone, especially when he breathed out fire, as it is the nature of dragons to do. To the end of his long tail was attached a big electric light. Perhaps the most singular thing about the dragon's appearance at this time was the fact that he had a row of seats attached to his back, one seat for each member of the party. These seats were double, with curved backs, so that two could sit in them, and there were twelve of these double seats, all strapped firmly around the dragon's thick body, and placed one behind the other, in a row that extended from his shoulders nearly to his tail. Aha! exclaimed Tubekins. I see that Tititi Hoochoo has transformed Quox into a carry-all. I'm glad of that, said Betsy. I hope, Mr. Dragon, you won't mind our riding on your back. Not a bit, replied Quox. I'm in disgrace just now, you know, and the only way to redeem my good name is to obey the orders of the Jinjin. If he makes me a beast of burden, it is only part of my punishment, and I must bear it like a dragon. I don't blame you people at all, and I hope you'll enjoy the ride. Hop on, please, all aboard for the other side of the world. Silently, they took their places. Hank sat in the front seat with Betsy, so that he could rest his front hoofs up on the dragon's head. Behind them were Shaggy and Polychrome, then Files and the Princess, and Queen Anne and Tick-Tock. The officers rode in the rear seats. When all had mounted to their places, the dragon looked very like one of those sightseeing wagons so common in big cities, only he had legs instead of wheels. All ready, asked Quox, and when they said they were, he crawled to the mouth of the tube and put his head in. Goodbye and good luck to you, called Tukins, but no one thought to reply because just then the dragon slid his great body into the tube 
and the journey to the other side of the world began.